Jesus, thank you that your word is living and active. This is not mere print on a page that we're examining. We're not looking at some ancient, uh, curious text. We are studying your living words that you breathed out through Jude, your servant. This is uh, life-transforming. And we pray that it would transform us today as we hear your word. Give us clarity of mind. Uh, give us clarity of thought. Give us attentive minds. Give me a clear, strong voice to proclaim your truth. Help us in every way by your good spirit, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, if I mention the name Billy Graham, many of you, of course, would recognize the name. Uh, he's seen in this quite old photograph uh, right here on the right side, very young man back in those days. Uh, if you're not familiar with Billy Graham, he was practically a household name in, in the United States at one time. Uh, less known is his friend and associate, uh, a man named Charles Templeton. This is Charles Templeton here on the left. And this photograph we're looking at was a promotional photo that uh, was taken just before these three men uh, left uh, to proclaim uh, the gospel of Christ throughout Europe. Uh, 1946, you might realize the significance of that date. The uh, World War II ended just a year before this. And uh, a large part of Europe was still reeling from the devastation of, of World War II. And on that speaking tour where they held evangelistic meetings, uh, Templeton, again, he's on the left there as you look at this picture, uh, his speaking skills were clearly evident. As he stood up to spoke and, and preach God's word, in fact, this article from a, a few years ago comments, though Graham, Billy Graham, routinely induced better results with his altar calls, Templeton was widely considered the more gifted preacher. Handsome, suave, intelligent, and charismatic temple lacked only a formal education to, to validate these talents. And after this tour concluded, Templeton sought to remedy that lack in his formal education and enrolled in Princeton Theological Seminary in 1948. It was after his first semester that he reconnected with Billy Graham in New York City to discuss what he'd been studying that first semester, probably not aware of Princeton, but uh, Princeton had turned to liberal theology uh, by now, and this had clearly made an impact on Templeton, who confronted Billy Graham with these words, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. Your language is out of date. You're going to have to learn the new jargon if you're going to be successful in your ministry. Unfortunately, this conversation led Billy Graham to significant doubts about the Bible that would plague him for the next uh, short period of time. Graham traveled to Los Angeles. He was to speak out there. Uh, and one day he roamed into the foothills of nearby San Bernardino Mountains. And with the moon shining, he wandered off the trail, opened his Bible on a tree stump, and took his concerns to God, and inexplicably found his doubts and concerns lifted from him. Uh, he prayed, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. And while 
there are profound reasons to accept the Bible as true and authoritative. It does come down to our trust in God and His Word. Just months after this breakthrough in the mountains, Billy Graham held an evangelistic crusade in Los Angeles, California. This is a one of his most well-known events. This is when Louis, uh, Louis Zamperini of Unbroken came to faith in Jesus Christ at this Los Angeles crusade, if you're familiar with the book and the movie Unbroken. Uh, after this crusade in Los Angeles, he actually did, Billy Graham, that has become a household name in, in a great part of America. Charles Templeton, on the other hand, in a very public departure from the Christian faith, declared himself a confirmed skeptic of Christianity in 1957. His ongoing doubts eventually led him into atheism. And in 1999, Templeton published his memoir, which you can still find on Amazon, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. How could this happen? How could someone who once publicly proclaimed the good news about Christ turn his back like this to become a confirmed atheist? Why do departures like this happen? Why did the more recent departures by Rob Bell and Joshua Harris happen? Why do lesser-known people, like some of your friends, depart from the faith? Much like Charles Templeton here, our passage today describes the departure of Jude's opponents from the Christian faith. But it wasn't just one departure. Jude tells us that truly they made five departures. This is not to say that these are the only departures that people make when they walk away from faith in Christ, but these five departures are common in many who depart from the Christian faith. What do those who depart from the faith leave behind? What kind of departures am I talking about? Well, there are five in the verses before us. The first departure that we see is a departure from the authority of the Bible. Jude's opponents stopped looking to the Bible as their final authority for their lives. Look at the way verse 8 begins in your copy of God's Word. It says, Yet in like manner, these people also. Who are these people? Uh, it's ref a reference to the false teachers that Jude talked about back in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And he'll call him these people or these uh, throughout the rest of the book. Uh, and note that Jude is making a comparison here. He's comparing the current false teachers uh, identified as these people with the three examples we looked at last Sunday in verses 5 through 7. These people are like Israel in the wilderness. These people are like fallen angels. These people are like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These people, these false teachers are acting in very similar ways to the people in those historical examples. And Jude goes on to identify specifically what they're doing as verse 8 goes on. It says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Jude's opponents didn't look to God's word as their final authority in life. They looked to their dreams uh, as their final authority in life. They weren't relying on 
the objective revelation of God for direction, they were relying on their subjective experiences for direction. It seems that they claimed to receive revelation from God through these dreams. And the major problem with this was that their dreams ran contrary to what God's word said. They were using their dreams to approve of their immoral behavior. Now, we don't deny that God can use subjective experiences to lead us, but that subjective guidance will never and must never contradict what the written Word of God says. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to say amen with gusto right after that, okay? <laughs> the subjective guidance we receive will never and must never contradict what the written Word of God says. Amen. Yes. Now, I hope you really do agree with that in your heart. You will, it will save you so much grief. You are doing yourself a great kindness by uh, hopefully and heartfully agreeing with that statement. I point out that it is the Holy Spirit that guides us and can lead us in subjective ways. But I point out that you remember the word holy in Holy Spirit. <laughs> without flaw, without blemish. Because he is holy, his guidance will never contradict any of the words that he has also breathed out into Scripture. Remember, he breathed this out. Could he possibly contradict himself? <laughs> it's absurd. Of course not. His, any subjective guidance you might receive would never contradict the words he breathed out through his apostles and prophets. God can use subjective experiences, but we don't look to those subjective experiences as authoritative because only God's written word is authoritative. And we look to his written word as our final authority in life. We look to scripture to either approve or condemn our actions. We look to his word and his word alone to find the kind of person he wants us to marry. We look to the Bible to find out what kind of sexual orientation pleases God and what kind he looks on with displeasure. You and I should never allow someone's dreams or visions, including our own, to direct our lives. If their dreams contradict the Bible, they're unbiblical. And if their dreams agree with the Bible, they're unnecessary. We look to God's word, and God's word alone is our final authority in life. The Apostle Paul gave this same direction to the church in Colossae. Consider what he said to uh, the people in Colossae about the same kind of men who were trying to disrupt them. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So on the one hand, don't be entrapped by anyone's dream or vision. But on the other hand, he says in chapter 3, verse 16, and if we've read this verse once, we've read it a million times, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Oh, we need the bedrock of his word to build our, our lives upon. Should we all pause and sing this morning, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Uh, in, the, in the quadrangle of Leland Stanford University near San Francisco, stood this memorial arch. I'm sorry, the picture is small. It, it, it's quite tall, quite splendid looking. Uh, and it seemed like it, it would last forever, or so people thought. In 1906, uh, San Francisco was shaken by an earthquake, and this is what happened to the memorial arch. It crumbled. And the reason it crumbled is because they discovered that the builder had filled the foundation with chips and rubble. And his secret sin had come to, come to light as the rotten foundation was disclosed. Really, really, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And I, I plead with you to build your life on the objective an authoritative truth of the Bible, the living, breathing word of God. Let it dwell in you richly. Take it in daily. Uh, feast on it as often as a baby takes a bottle. What, every four hours or so? You don't have to be legalistic about it, but it'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? So these men, these, these people, and you can hear the, I don't know, I kind of see Jude spitting these, these people with a slight tick of his head every time he writes it down. These people, uh, they have uh, departed from the authority of the Bible, relying on their own subjective experiences instead of the objective truth of God's word. They made another departure as well. They departed from the authority of the Bible first, but secondly, they departed from the moral law of God. Uh, relying on their dreams, false teachers taught that the commands of Scripture didn't apply to them. And verse 8 goes on to say that, relying on their dreams defile the flesh. And notice the word defile. When that is used in its most literal sense, it means to mark something, discolor something, to dye a piece of fabric or glass. It has a figurative use, and defile then takes on the idea of corrupting someone or something with sins or vices. It, it, it refers to being marked by the stain of sin. Remember what these men were leaning toward, they were, uh, they leaned toward the sin of sexual immorality, using sex outside of God's intended design between a man and, women, and woman in the covenant bond of marriage. We saw this up in verse 5. It says, these teachers pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And also in verse 7, comparing them to fallen angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, he said they indulged in sexual immorality. And so one person has made this comment, the opponents justified their moral laxity by appealing to dreams which they believe functioned as divine approval for their behavior. Presumably, they appealed to their dreams to say that their sexual freedom was from God himself, that they transcended moral norms. We call that presumption. We call that presumption. Listen to Charles Spurgeon uh, comment. It is a precious doctrine that the saints are safe. 
but it is a damnable inference from it that therefore they may live as they like. It is a glorious truth that God will keep his people. But it is an abominable falsehood that sin will do them no harm. Remember that God gives us liberty, not license. And while he gives us protection, he will not allow us presumption. It's a very important word. And you see the, the waterfall effect of having left the authority of the word of God. They secondly uh, depart from the moral law of God. We're above these norms uh, that you read about in Scripture. He's revealed to us through dreams that this doesn't apply to us. Again, I, I hope you see the absurdity of this second departure. Well, there's a third, of course. The third departure that they made is a departure from the Lordship of Christ. They did not recognize Christ's authority to rule their lives. Again, this is a trickle-down effect. All these spill out and are connected. And we see this as well in verse 8 as it goes on. Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. Uh, authority could refer to human authority, it's more likely that it refers to divine authority. The word could be translated lordship. They reject lordship. They reject sovereignty. And it's not as though they, uh, well, the word he's using here, uh, uh, authority, is the word kuriotes. Uh, it's defined as the majestic power that the kurios wields. That's the Greek word for lord. Uh, Kuriates is defined as the majestic power that the kurios wields, ruling power, lordship, dominion. And so these opponents made a departure from acknowledging the lordship of Christ. Uh, they departed from, or they denied his right to rule his subjects. They denied his right to, uh, uh, they refused his right to direct the lives of those whom he created. And I pray that you see the absurdity of this as well. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the Lord of the universe, being denied his right to rule those he brought into life, and then gave new birth to. How could he be denied the right to rule those that he has created? Back when I was growing up, we um, often heard the phrase, uh, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? The thinking that was prevalent, at least in the circles I grew up in, was that you could trust in Christ as your Savior, and then at a later time, you made him Lord. You gave him control. There's that little picture of the circle, and it represented your heart, and there was a little throne in the circle, and who was on the throne, you or Jesus Christ. And so they talked, a lot of talk was made about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Let me tell you something. We do not make Jesus the Lord of our lives. Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives. Whether you recognize that or not is the problem. And it's not that they issued some kind of doctrinal statement. We hereby declare or anything like that. It was just through their lives, the way they lived, their immorality. It's similar to how Paul describes some of the people on the island of Crete. And Paul wrote to Titus, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
I think we just hate to be told what to do. I think at heart, we're all standing up on the inside, aren't we? The little fella, you remember, told to sit down. He says, okay, but I'm standing up on the inside. Someone once said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Perhaps they can be compared to the 45 million Americans who still refuse to wear their seatbelts. The federal government says that 38 unbelted people die in traffic accidents every day. Most of those would, people would still be alive if they had simply fastened their seatbelts. But I guess they'd die proudly aware of the fact that no one can tell them what to do. You bear any similarity to this? Submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Mm, boy, Whew. could make some really personal applications at this point. I don't want to take any cheap shots, though. <coughs> they departed from the Lordship of Christ. They denied his authority to tell them what to do. The king of the universe. Such, uh, the word I'm thinking of is hubris, pride. There's a fourth departure. The authority uh, uh, of God's word uh, secondly, they denied um, the moral law of God. Uh, third was a departure from the lordship of Christ. And the, the fourth thing that they depart from is the recognition of evil. Uh, these false teachers had a flippant attitude towards Satan and his demons. Simply, they did not take evil seriously. And there are two things I want to mention about this departure to you. First of all, Jude describes their practice to us. What were they doing in this area? We're down to the very last phrase of verse 8. It says, reject authority, and lastly, blaspheme the glorious ones. What a curious phrase. What does blaspheme mean? Uh, usually this word refers to insulting God, mocking him, slandering his character. You've heard of people being condemned for blasphemy. But in Jude 8, Jude says that these teachers insulted, mocked, or slandered, not God, but the glorious ones. Bible scholars believe that that phrase is a reference to angels. And because of the example that follows in verse 9, scholars believe that glorious ones refers to evil angels or demons. Now you might respond, how could demons possibly be described as glorious ones? How can that be? I simply remind you of 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, I suggest to you if demons were to appear, they probably would not appear the way that movies and TV often portray them. They too would most likely appear as angels of light. And then there's the issue of their immense spiritual power. Uh, I remind you of Ephesians 6.10, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They're referred to as glorious ones because of their appearance in the first place, but also because of their spiritual might. The same thing uh, is written by Peter in his second letter. 
makes a similar charge against the false teachers he writes about. Peter says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, I can see the question marks, and the question is, how did these false teachers insult demons as Jude seems to indicate here? I found a helpful explanation in the Reformation Study Bible. I just want you to listen to this, and, and I, I think it makes great sense. And so it says, when warned of the danger of falling into the power of spiritual forces of evil, the false teachers apparently mocked the power of the devil and his demons. The false teachers seem to have slandered the devil and his minions by denying their work, opening themselves up to further deception from the father of lies. If one does not understand Satan's power, one cannot discern it or be on guard against his influence. Even today, a flippant attitude towards Satan and his power can lead to spiritual danger. The devil prowls about looking for those whom he may devour, and he finds it easier, easiest to devour those who are unsuspecting or those who deny the reality of his work in the world. Such people are unable to follow Peter's admonition to firmly resist Satan. I'll never forget when I was still a junior high intern, I said in one of our Bible studies that um, uh, Satan is your enemy and he is out to get you. And one of the young men... Uh, actually laughed out loud and he said where do you get that this was a student at a Jesuit high school by the way and you think a Jesuit would know better but you know uh, I said the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour first Peter 5 uh, 7 I believe 7 or 8 It seems that these opponents of Jude fell prey to one of the most common strategies of Satan, and that is to disbelieve that he even exists. That there is a power of evil at work. C.S. Lewis put it like this. This is quite a while ago. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and healthy interest in them. And I have known people in both categories. I'm sure you have as well. These false teachers fall into the first of those categories, denying the existence of Satan, an error that many in our world hold. This was their practice. They slandered the glorious ones by denying the existence and by not taking it, uh, by not taking evil seriously. Well, we asked them if that was their practice, what should their, if that was their uh, practice, what should they have done instead? Well, there's a second thing I want to point out to you here, and that is a principle. Uh, that they should have followed, that you and I should also follow. And Jude lays this out in verse 9. Now, I just want to say, as I was told on Romper Room when I was growing up, everyone put on your thinking caps. <laughs> Pull on your thinking cap, you know. It's, this is a little tricky, so just hang in there. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Well, that's only half the verse, but that's quite a mouthful right there. Uh, first, take note that verse 9 begins with the word but, a contrast. And that's to point out to us, Jude is saying, in contrast to what the false teachers have done, consider what Michael the archangel did that he is about to go on and describe to us. 
he calls Michael an archangel. And that indicates Michael's authority and prominence among God's angels. He's described in the book of Daniel as a prince and a great prince, uh, which indicates that he is a commander of the holy angels. What exactly did Michael do here? What was Michael's practice regarding uh, Satan and his demons? It goes on to say in verse 9, um, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Whatever story that Jude is referring to here has been lost to history. Bible scholars believe that this might have come from a writing called the Assumption of Moses, a writing of which only fragments still exist. But Jude seems to regard this account of Moses' burial as a historical event. All the other events he's referred to up to this point have been actual historical events. And so this one is likely uh, historical as well. That is not to say that Jude endorsed everything that was in the assumption of Moses is true. But Jude does uh, infer that this event is true. And so what is this about? Well, recall that when Israel entered the promised land, Moses was not allowed to enter because he disobeyed the command of God. And this is Deuteronomy 34, its explanation. And the Lord said to him, Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So, all right, I know your heads are spinning a little bit. I found a very helpful explanation in the MacArthur Study Bible. And I just want to share this with you. I think it it's, uh, makes good sense. And so MacArthur, or whoever edited the notes, says this, Moses died on Mount Nebo in Moab, without having entered the promised land and was secretly buried in a place not known to man, which we just read. It would likely be that the confrontation took place, that this describes, uh, took place as Michael buried Moses, uh, buried Moses to prevent Satan from using Moses' body for some diabolical purpose not stated. Perhaps Satan wanted to use it as an idol an object of worship for Israel. Oh, come on. Worship's not, uh, Israel's not prone to worship things, are they? I was being facetious. God sent Michael, however, to be certain it was buried. So note that this, when this confrontation took place between Michael a very powerful and authoritative archangel among the ranks of God's armies, and Satan, the prince of darkness, note that Michael did not pronounce a rebuke against Satan. Verse 9 says he did not presume, or he did not dare to pronounce a charge against Satan. He merely said, the Lord rebuke you. This immensely powerful angel in his own right, far, far more powerful than you and I, let's face it, deferred to the supreme authority of God. Now, stay with me for one more quote. This, again, is from the MacArthur Study Bible. Rather than personally cursing such a powerful angel as Satan, Michael deferred to the ultimate sovereign power of God following the example of the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 3.2. This is the supreme illustration of how Christians are to deal with Satan and demons. Believers are not to address them. 
but rather to seek the Lord's intervening power against them. I, I think that's a helpful explanation, and I hope you were able to follow me through that. Again, you can find that in the notes of the MacArthur Study Bible, should you care to look there. I agree with that possible scenario. I think, I think it helps the text make sense to me, and I hope to you as well. But I also agree with the application that it makes to Christians. It says this is the supreme illustration of how Christians are to deal with Satan and demons. Believers are not to address them. Believers are not to address them, but rather to seek the Lord's intervening power against them. Contrast that with some of the things you've heard about spiritual warfare and how some of you have been instructed to address demonic powers. Most of those ideas run contrary to what the Word of God is teaching us here. We're not instructed to address demonic forces, but to defer, like Michael, to the sovereign authority of God. That's what the opponents should have done. That should have been their posture toward evil. That's the principle they should have followed. And that's the principle you and I should follow as well. Instead, their practice was in great presumption to mock the power of evil. Perhaps like that young man in my junior high ministry, out and out laughing at such a preposterous suggestion that something was out to get them. So there's a departure from the recognition of evil. One more departure, friends. And this final departure is the departure from understanding spiritual truth. A departure from understanding spiritual truth this seems to me like an umbrella category. It, it is perhaps Jews' worst indictment of all and simply states that his opponents did not grasp spiritual truth. It was beyond them. Uh, and look at verse 10 where this is described but again, here's that phrase, and, and you kind of have to spit it out. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. The, the broadest explanation of their lifestyle and false teaching, they live the way they do in opposition to the clear commands of Scripture. They teach falsely the things they do because they do not understand spiritual truth. They have no grasp of spiritual realities. And what this indicates to us is, uh, uh, this indicates clearly that these men are unbelievers who do not possess the Spirit of God. Listen to the word describe this condition of ignorance uh, from 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the unconverted person, the unsaved person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. No wonder they mocked. No wonder they laughed. No wonder they chuckled at the thought of a personal evil out to get them. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are understood by the Spirit of God, he says. And Paul describes false teachers to Timothy in a, in a similar way. And Paul says in, in uh, 2 Timothy, For among them, them, those false teachers, are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Oh, they slander the glorious ones as Jude describes because they were unconverted men who didn't understand the truth of Scripture. And they didn't understand the truth of Scripture because without Christ, Satan had blinded them to truth. As Paul says in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds 
of unbelievers. And because of this ignorance, these people, these false teachers, Jude says, they will perish eternally. Note the end of verse 10. Uh, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. All that they're doing is, is following what their nature tells them to do. They're simply doing what they are naturally inclined to do. They were not drawn toward the things of God. They were drawn toward their natural sinful desires. And in this regard, Jude says they're no better than the animals. My dog is naturally drawn to food. Oh my goodness. Every day she's sniffing for food out on a walk. And it's disgusting the things she picks up. She tried to eat a candy wrapper yesterday. And I could tell because it was crinkling in her mouth as she chewed it. It's like we never feed her. And we give her solid meals every day. And Jude and the Holy Spirit are saying these false teachers are no better than animals that simply follow their nature, their, their natural instinct, what their inclinations led them to do. And by following their own evil desires like this, they would face eternal ruin. Look at what it says. Note that word he uses. It's the word destroyed. Uh, it means to, uh, it refers to their eternal ruin in hell. And one scholar says the destruction envisioned is not temporal, uh, not destruction here in this life. Jude thought of their eternal judgment when they will pay the consequences for being enslaved to their sinful desires. The only thing these people understand well. This is why we need Christ to set us free. This is why we need Christ to give us a new sight. This is why we need Christ to give us a new mind. Because without his work, to regenerate us and give us a new heart, we are stuck in the same place following what we're inclined to do. We need Christ to give us new desires, new inclinations, new interests, so that we can respond to the gospel message and repent and believe in Christ's atoning death on the cross. Without that, we're in the same place. And we all have been in that place, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Why do people walk away from the Christian faith? Whether it's Charles Templeton or Rob Bell or Joshua Harris or someone not in the public eye, like a relative of yours, a friend of yours who you grew up in church with and later uh, walked away. What do they leave behind? What kinds of departures do they make? Well, what Judas said is that they make five departures. Again, perhaps not all, but this is so typical of many who walk away. They depart from the authority of the Bible, building their lives upon the authority of God's Word. They depart from the moral law of God. Think of it as summarized in the Ten Commandments but all of God's commands. They depart from the Lordship of Christ, his right to rule their lives. They throw off 
They depart from the recognition of evil and begin to, begin to mock it and think it's superstitious or, or just an old fable. And most seriously, they depart from understanding truth and are led to a darkened understanding. So friend, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, my, my intention is not to cast doubt on your faith. I would like to cast doubt if you profess to know Christ but see no evidence of a heart change. That I would ask you to examine because that's what God would ask you to examine. In 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You say you've prayed the sinner's prayer. What came of that? I agree with Dr. R.C. Sproul in this uh, truism that he has stated. No fruit, no root. Root always produces fruit. And I say that not because I like Dr. R.C. Sproul, because I believe that is what Scripture teaches. You perhaps are not sure whether you have trusted Christ. You've stumbled badly. Your life is inconsistent. I would love to visit with you uh, following today and just talk about it and help you find where you are and help you see the claims Christ makes on you and help you see the free offer of forgiveness he's extending to you even now through my words. Come and see me, please, or shoot me an email. Now, Christ, we come to this text, and it helps us explain what we see in the lives of people around us without being flippant. It's not stretched to say people are dropping like flies. And we pray, O oh God, for the kind of faith portrayed by Jude, faith that lasts, faith that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Thank you that this is not up to us. Thank you that we don't have to will it into existence. Thank you that it's not... Uh, us working under our own steam, but your indwelling spirit gives us grace for this. Jesus, cause your word to do its supernatural work. Savior, we pray in your name. Amen.